welcome to Coming Out the Pod with me, Ed Connell, the podcast where members of the LGBTQ community share their coming out stories with me. This week's guest is the fabulous Rob Rinder. Rob began his professional life as a barrister, but found fame on ITV's Judge Rinder. Of course, we talked about his coming out to family and friends, and the experience of growing up, as he describes, asphyxiated by the cloak of shame, with only negative LGBT representation in the media, but we talked about so much more. His university dissertation on gay porn, how he came to get the role of Judge Rinder, his appearance on the BBC show Who Do You Think You Are, where he investigated his family's Jewish roots, his appearance on Strictly Come Dancing, how same-sex partners will help remove the cloak of shame for others, and of his desire to be partnered with the handsome Gorka. We also talked about his experience at the criminal bar and how the profession is now embracing diversity. Of course I was never going to keep this episode under an hour. Rob is quite the entertainer and it was a delight to interview him and I hope you enjoy it too. Please be aware that this podcast contains some bad language and themes of an adult nature. Well, I'd like to introduce my next guest. It's uh, Rob Rinder, who is a barrister. Um, and can I call you TV personality? You can call me whatever you like. <laughs> yeah, TV personality, broadcaster, um, columnist. God, I feel like I'm in my grandma's living room, you know. <laughs> Artist. No, 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 none of the above. And author as well, because, of course, so, you, had a, you published a book as well, didn't you? Is it no. just one book? Uh, well, it was a small pamphlet I wrote about money laundering, but um, the publishers wanted to know who to dedicate it to, and I told them, just tell whoever's reading it not to operate heavy machinery. <laughs> but I'm working on a fiction at the moment, so they have no talent, it turns out, which is a bit of a pain. Uh, they were... You were called to the bar, I think, in 2001, is that yeah, right? I think that's about right. Um, and you... I was nine then. <laughs> Obviously, I can see that just by how young you look. <laughs> And then you um, practiced for quite a long time. And I was mm. interested to hear how the uh, Judge Rinder came about. Mm. Because I, I read online that you had been writing some sort of ideas for scripts for TV. Is that yeah, that? that's right. Um, well, firstly, it's a real privilege to be in this podcast because I'm sitting with a real your honour. And I didn't say too much about it. But, um, you know, um, you sit in a court where I used to practice from time to time and happily no longer practice because you deal with some of the most challenging cases. So um, probably less said about that, the better, really. But normally we'd both be bewigged and um, quaking. um, Well, I, one of us, probably me quaking (laughs) in my boots before you. But there you are. Uh, Yeah, I practised for sort of about 14 years, a bit more. Um, And... You know, it's a story I've told sort of many times, but um, I probably, like you, I would have thought, was at the bar when, you know, you could live off legal aid and um, had a bit of luck really early on in my career where I was sort of spotted by an influential solicitor. Is that the one that was in Birmingham? Right, yeah. yeah. Luck, 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 right? I mean, you know, 99 days out of 100, I'd say I was infinitely less talented than certainly my year. I mean, you know, I recently listened to a Desert Island disc of the late Sister Wendy, who um, said, I'm not very clever, I'm just good at putting my goods in the shop window. I thought, yeah, that's me. (laughs) And despite sort of crushing imposter syndrome over the years, um, 
you know, found myself doing more and more cases, chiefly as a junior, and then eventually, as you know, a, a, a few other cases, and um, moved into financial crime. Genuinely, despite a lot of people thinking that it has all of the interest of paint drying, found it quite interesting. And um, the long and the short of it was that I ended up um, being instructed um, on a case in the Turks and Caicos Islands yes. where the government were suspended for corruption after uh, Lord Auld did an inquiry. That trial still going on 10 years later, by the way. Crikey. And I suppose the mission of the prosecution, for want of a better way of putting it, was to establish a serious fraud office model, which for your listeners that won't understand that, and I probably still don't, um, is at the start of a big investigation, you should have barristers um, working alongside the investigators to, if you like, think about and be mindful of all of the long-term pitfalls and various procedural issues which might arise. In other words, getting a bunch of poachers turned gamekeepers to keep the show on the road once yes. the trial comes. So that's what I was doing for four years, which sounded like a real thrill ride. I was in the Old Bailey when I was instructed on the case, and I thought, how fabulous. And the only reason I'd heard of the Turks and Caicos Islands because years ago um, I used to watch Miss World, <laughs> and keep meticulous <laughs> notes, I might add. <laughs> I was thinking about the other day, do you remember the Panini football stickers? Of course I do. Yeah, yeah well, you see, my brother and um, others of my era used to collect them and put them curatorially in teams, whereas I used to keep them in order of attractiveness. <laughs> and I had a whole um, page full of Jan Molbys. <laughs> and, of course, one of the things about being intelligent is you meet these people in later life. All I'll say is, poor Jan, the roof has certainly not stayed on. Um, <laughs> But um, it was very, it was, it was a fascinating case, and there was a lot to it, and it was sort of multifaceted. But like most of us, like you, you know, I think most people want to conscript you into being one thing. If you're a judge, you can't be amusing or delight in other things. Yeah. You know? And I, um, after the initial flush of wow, the beach, you know, that gets old fairly quickly. So I was sort of writing TV formats amongst other things, and. Um, Again, the difficulty, I suppose, was, much like my acting back at university in the National Youth Theatre, is that um, I had no talent, it turned out, but the germ of a good idea, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, like so much of my life. You know, so <laughs> but it, did, was it an idea you had that you wanted to sort of recreate a modern version of the programme Crown Court? Was that one of the ideas? Something like that, but a kind of reality version. Right. And partially it was because lots of my friends from college were actors, and whilst one of them has gone on to be the sexiest man in the world, you know, the rest are, uh, well, struggling, as you can imagine. And um, that was the idea. And I worked with this production company and um, went, amongst other places, to flog it to this woman in ITV. And um, she, I'm not sure how to describe it, I think the best way of thinking about it is that she gave it her sort of undivided indifference. It's a nice... <laughs> way of describing it. She, I think she said it was, might have been the worst pitch she'd ever heard, but I just liked her. Do you know what I mean? In the way, yeah. I suppose she had a degree of kind of campery and no-nonsenseness about her, which I've come to discover is almost unique in television, where um, people attend meetings all day. I mean, it's not like lawyers. They no. attend meetings for two reasons. To divest themselves of the responsibility in the event that things are a disaster, and to um, cloak themselves in all of the well, the, the awards in the event that things are a hit. But she was a sort of maverick producer. At the time, uh, Turks and Caicos had sort of not gone to bed, but was bubbling along, so I could take a case in Croydon, which, no offence to any of your listeners in Croydon, but it certainly didn't add to the 
overall happiness of the tapestry I was experiencing at that time. I think I need to pause when I say Freud, and even now, no. But I was also representing a defendant in a very challenging case. And it was at that time um, that I'd kind of, for want of a better way of describing it, fallen out of love with the job. And I mean that quite seriously. Um, you know, certainly better than most, having lived it, that to do the job doesn't need to be perfect all the time. You don't need to have a high every week, every month, every year even, for every defendant you represent. But given the importance of it, you have to be able to know that you're going to get up in the morning and replenish that currency in some capacity. I was just bankrupt. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, by the time I made the transition to my new role, I, mm. I had begun to fall out of love with the job. Mm. And I think that was largely because of the, the, the legal aid problems. I mean, I'd been doing criminal legal aid work and the fees had kept going down and the workload was going up and it's a, it's a mm. demanding job, sort of intellectually, mm. mentally, yeah. emotionally. And you're right, you have to get up every morning and have that renewed vigour. Mm. And it becomes difficult after a long yeah. period of time. I'm glad you put it in that way. And I, I have to say, I, I was depleted. Um, and it had quite a serious impact on my mental health, actually. And on or around that time, um, I'd read that woman who I'd met, Helen Warner's her name, um, I'd read a book of hers. She wrote her description, not mine, listeners, Chicklet. Well, I mean, it was a whole range of human geography I hadn't experienced, but I whole, <laughs> thought the whole thing was hilarious, you know, just because you've read the um, brochure, it doesn't mean you're going to go on the package tour, it turns out. <laughs> I did, albeit vicariously. And um, I wrote her an email, and she was sort of amused by this, and she said, oh, this guy in Manchester who wants to make a court show, Never met anybody. Do you want to have, go and have lunch? So I said, yeah, why not? You know, because why not? Especially as I was feeling yeah. pretty low about the job. And it's fascinating the number of lawyers I've met over the years that said, I auditioned for that. And all right, love, you know. <laughs> was even, was even a pro. So I met Tom McClellan, as, as he's called. And um, it was sort of odd because the channel sort of wanted it in reverse. So all of these meetings start happening, none of which I'm attending, all of which I'm kind of virtue signal nodding at, going, yes, I'm sure this great big court program is going to happen. This is telly. Um, you know, mind your ears, but, you know, you're obviously talking bollocks. This yeah. will never happen. And took a brief in Jersey, a very interesting case. With the, you know, they had the independent care inquiry there. Yeah. And naturally, they were concerned because of the sort of limited separation between the prosecutorial and legislative branches of government that the... Um, de facto CPS, let's call them that, wouldn't hand over the material to the um, inquiry. So they appointed sort of independent counsel, which is what I was doing, right. sort of overseeing the disclosure process for all of the stuff the inquiry needed. And I flew to Manchester. And honestly, I arrived and there was a court with my name on it. <laughs> and I thought the thing, I mean, what? I mean, I didn't have an agent. I thought this must be a joke. Um, and, you know, case number one, sort of low sort of civil cases, a woman was suing her photographer and I said, well, thank you so much and I'm very grateful that you brought your mum to court. That's my sister. <laughs> and case number two, which is, you know, um, we're, we're regulated by Ofcom, so they're real cases shots live. Yeah. And I have to give full judgment. People don't know because you often see 20 minutes of sure. it. We say sure, people are often sort of surprised by that. People have a very different experience when they come to watch the court. You know, often I'm thrilled when there's been a challenging judgment, and I'll go back to my chambers, which is agreeing with producers who are listening in. I say, wasn't that a thrilling judgment? And they're all sitting there in a coma, you know. <laughs> but case number two, um, 
I said something, and I should be clear that producers aren't allowed to intervene in any way which would influence the outcome of the case. So they can say evidence is coming up or the donkey's coming in or that sort of thing. That's happened. But the woman who runs my show is um, from somewhere north of Birmingham and um, very unusual in television in that she'll call it precisely as it is. So case number two, I said something like, well, this case is £90. You know, and here's the unforgivable clangor that I've learned from, learned so much from. Um, that's not a lot of money, I say. Mm. And then, <laughs> comes to my ear. Do you want to rephrase that? You sound like a right posh dickhead, is what she says. <laughs> right. And then, of course, case after case, year after year. And what happened, actually, was that it went out in August in what's called the death slot, two o'clock, sunny August. And for some reason, it captured the public's imagination and has settled unusually into almost kind of the public consciousness. It's sort of taken on a life that's beyond me. But the biggest gift of it is that it's given me all of these other opportunities you know, from free dancing lessons, which was a delight and joy, <laughs> to um, other things. You know, I make now history documentaries on BBC One. I've just had a text from Michelle Visage. I mean, what's not <laughs> marvellous about that? But, you know, serious documentaries on BBC One, a chat show on Channel 4, just all of this other stuff. You know, it's opened doors to these sort of almost unforeseeable privileges. It's not bad if you're an egomaniac either, you know. And the, and the nice thing is that for a lot of certainly people with a background in criminal law, when they start looking at alternative careers, they always come to the conclusion, oh, I don't have any transferable skills. But in fact, Mm. you've shown that the skills of the bar Mm. are transferable. Oh, I wouldn't go mad there. No, I I still (laughs) think I've got no transferable skills. I think that's infinitely overgenerous. That over lockdown, I've realised this. I was watching a film. It may have, you know, perhaps unpolitically been a Woody Allen film, um, you know... um, Annie Hall, and in his guise as a comedian on the television, he's being interviewed, and he says, well, I've got no transferable skills. In the event of war, I'll have to be a hostage. And I realise that's me. I can't cook or bang in a nail, and, you know, I speak a couple of languages, but not perfectly, you know. They don't even need answer anymore if there was anything really serious, because everyone's got YouTube. Yep. Apparently, rapier bitchiness is not useful in the event <laughs> of a real public crisis. <laughs> And in, including sort of the recent stuff you've done, I, mm. I saw very recently the um, Who Do You Think You Are programme, which, mm. um, from what you get, it, it looked like it was both a quite a difficult experience, but also, in some ways, quite rewarding, if that's the right word. It is the right word. It was a real gift. Um, so that was actually a repeat. Um, yet more privilege, layered on more privilege. I, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor, and I knew all my grandparents growing up. Um, sadly, I lost another one recently, but I still have two it's grandmothers alive in their 90s. Thank you. And um, my grandfather, who was the survivor who died in 2001, um, sort of informed everything. You know, he was a sort of central, emotional, and I suppose, if so far as you think about a political presence, small p, political presence in the family. And so I knew the outlines of the story, but not the colouring in. Yeah. And it's interesting when you're given the gift of a programme like that because you're mindful in two ways. Firstly, on a kind of, I'll put it in posh, a macro level, you're aware that you're telling this very important historical story. But also, um, just the critical importance for my mum and my aunt and how they'd grown around, grown up around the shadow of the Holocaust yeah. and around his narrative, quietly told in phrases and in behaviours and the names of those who had been murdered but nothing more 
So the privilege, for example, in that program of sitting in the house where my grandfather was born and just having an extraordinary moment, the man whose grandfather had been my grandfather's best friend, and him literally to have breathed life into these people who had previously just been names by virtue of a story. Mm. My great-grandfather was a small man in stature who dotted about the place. The girls were good in school and liked putting on plays. Every noun and every verb in that sentence mattered in a way which is indescribable. It's sort of where prose ends and poetry begins. And what was amazing about that programme, actually, was that I was by far and away the least famous in the group in that series, uh, which had Olivia Coleman and Boy George, etc. But it was the most watched. Mm. And at a time when... Um, you know, um, discussions around anti-Semitism, I'll put it in that neutral way, mm-hmm. um, were very much at the centre of kind of public discussion and discourse. Still are. And there wasn't a peep of anti-Semitism as it went out, just support and curiosity, and it had four million viewers. And from that, I've been able to make a two-part documentary which is coming out at the end of October, taking other people on their journeys, everyone located for reasons which I hope you're listeners intuitively understand in um, Western Europe to remind ourselves that this didn't take root in some cultural backwater but in a place where people felt sure and certain that they were sitting in evolved democracy so they learn a bit about that and I also um, had I keep using this word because I'm conscious of it because it's real the privilege of going to Treblinka with Mm. my mum to make the memorial prayer for my grandfather's family. And before we got there, um, having done the research, as you can imagine, I had been led to believe and believed, it had been published somewhere actually, that the last eyewitness to what had taken place on that ground, it's not like Auschwitz, it's not a curated museum. Like many of these places on the earth, you know, there's only the jagged suggestion of what's there. There's a park, it's strange. Mm curious, darkly curious and um, before we arrived on the ground the filmmaker who I love very much said look you know we believed that the last survivor had died in fact he hadn't, it's a man called Leon Ritz, he's from Gothenburg, a town near Gothenburg in Sweden, he didn't really want to be here today but he saw your mum on who do you think you are and he's insisted on coming so we had a moment where I met this man who is the last living human being to count what took place on that earth Mm. And we made the cottage together, him, my mum, and me. And just as I was about to say the names of my family, our family, he stopped me. And I can't be sure, because I've watched The Rushes, which is the, at the end of the day, the bits of filming, that some of which make the documentary, some which don't. I felt him touch me, and as I was about to have that personal moment, he stopped me and said, no, no, this is for all of Israel, it's for all the living people of the world. I mean, what a gift, mm. all because, you know, one day I went to a meeting in Manchester, got a job trying small claims court cases. Yeah. Privilege led on privilege on privilege. It's such a joy and delight. Yeah. It's a long answer, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. And if we were in court, and something, yes, all right. Get to the point, <laughs> Mr. Rinder. No, I've insisted on a skeleton <laughs> argument in advance. Oh, no, you would have done. Yeah, and three pages. <laughs> exactly. 
Um, in order to try and sort of contextualise mm. people's coming out stories, I think mm. it's kind of helpful to have this sort of context of their family upbringing. So, yeah. uh, Jewish family, um, yeah. siblings? Siblings. I think you're so right. I, I, I just want to um, reinforce that, um, how important family is. And also how you can't always predict um, how people are going to behave. But right, uh, uh, yeah, I had... Um, so, my dad... Firstly, I come from Southgate. Now, people where I grew up don't sound like me. I am my own special creation for a variety <laughs> of reasons. Um, you know, somebody the other day described me as being mugged by a Mitford, you know. Um, but down the road from Amy Winehouse, if you want to have an intuitive sense of how most of the people I'm still very friendly with um, sound, it's much more like that. My dad was a black taxi driver, and my mum a housewife at a time where, you know, that was enough of an income to live, I use this word loosely, a respectable working class um, life, and a good local state school, Osage School, hello to my fellow Southgaters, still very friendly with um, people from I went to school with, including Rachel Stevens. Remember her from Esquire? Yes. We're, we're, you know, she was in my year, and we still meet twice a year. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, Jewish, also very important. And I emphasise as well, not Reformed Jewish. Um, so until the age, for example, of 11, we wouldn't have dreamt of driving on a Sabbath. Yeah. And I was um, what now we would describe as gluck kosher. My mum still keeps a kosher home, but I would not eat anything other than kosher food. Um, my parents divorced when I was... And one brother, who's the delightful now with great friends. Growing up, we had still have nothing in common, which is much more problematic. Oh, older or younger than older. you? Older. Much, much two and a half years. Two and a half yeah. years. Divine Craig. Um, and, you know, played sort of football, really high standard, and rugby at county standard. And there was me. Um, <laughs> but I was very good at gymnastics and ice skating, you know. I mean, genuinely. And uh, uh, acting, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and my parents divorced when I was very young. Um, and I should also add, in that Jewish community, alongside, we also sort of lived alongside Greek Cypriots. Class was a bigger issue than any other um, intersection, let's mm. call it that. You know, um, race, for example, would be infinitely less important. You know, my mum was always edging me up the road to play with the daughter of some of the Nigerian doctors. <laughs> Down there, that was much more important. You know? Yeah. That's sort of... Anyway, my mum and dad got divorced when I was about four or five. And I always remember being kind of hyper-emotionally aware. And I know that I haven't sort of retrospectively reimagined myself and placed myself as the sort of hero of a story. But I... When she told me they were getting divorced, there were two instincts. The first one was I was thrilled that I was going to be the centre of a social drama, of course. <laughs> you know, because I thought, well, we'll be the first. You know, uh, never one for not wanting attention. But also thinking to myself, genuinely at the time, well, you know, you're woefully unsuited for one another. <laughs> never really been sort of terribly traumatised by the whole thing. But of course, my brother is the older one. Yeah. Experienced more. And saw a lot more. And I think, not always, but as a younger sibling, he rather cushioned the blow or absorbed a great deal more of the trauma of that breakup. And some of that trauma was um, cushioned or 
I suppose, helped by the fact that we were in a small community. I often still call it the shtetl. And by the shtetl, I mean into any of your listeners that aren't Jewish. Um, um, Fiddler on the Roof. And if you haven't watched Fiddler on the Roof, yes, that's an anti-Semitic <laughs> microaggression. Uh, but that sort of small townness, even though yeah. it's a suburb of London, small everything. And um, my grandma was around the corner, and my mum used to go back to work. And she did. And, you know, her journey is almost kind of impossible, really, when I think about it now. So, um, two things. Firstly, despite the very toxic nature of their breakup, and it was, in every conceivable sense, toxic. Um, they were young, they were in their 20s, I think about that now. Yeah. Obviously, I'm only a year older than them, but, <laughs> but still. Um, she was always mindful not to use my brother and I as weapons, you know, in uh, that breakup. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I'd sit, albeit in small issues involving custody or child support payments, it's fascinating when you see the parents of either gender that have done that. Yeah. I always want to say, get out of the way because your kids will find out who you are eventually. Yeah. But she didn't do that, and she enabled and supported relationships with my dad's family, who I'm still very close to today, including grandparents, etc. And she also um, started work again, and within a fairly short period of time, she became a financial advisor, and gradually, gradually, gradually started becoming more and more confident, and eventually opened up a small publishing house, which published newspapers. It's all important for her attitude, I think, in life, and ultimately my um, coming out story. And um, she started this small business, which became really successful. And if you'd known her, you know, and I, this is the way we talk about it, you know, sort of chicken soup looking like Pat Butcher in 1981. <laughs> you know, the thought of what she became, how she grew, learned, remained open-minded to the stage where, you know, by the late 90s and early 2000s, she was running a very successful publishing business. It's almost unthinkable, and she grew during that process too. Um, and she's been with my stepdad for 37 years or something. But interestingly, ne they never moved in with each other, and he never stayed in the house, you see, she's very old-fashioned, until I was about 15. Right. I think she didn't want to see me in that, or us to see her in that sort of context. Who knows why? Um, but we were sort of very close. Um, I went to Kiwi Boys which was utterly unsuitable for me. It's a brilliant school, and I still maintain a good degree of respect for it, but my brother had preceded me, yeah. which didn't do me any favours, you know, sort of rugby playing, and he was also a sort of mess, and, but rugby playing, and, you know, they gave me a ball by genetic virtue, and I couldn't catch it, had glue on it, and, you know, there was all that shouting, and I was like, just not for me. I ended up going to Woodhouse College where I found my kind of academic mentor who said, you know, you're quite clever. A bit of like a year ahead, I was quite young for the year. And that changed everything. I went to, I had girlfriends, went to university. Um, but yeah, the answer is very small community. Not small-minded necessarily, but small, small expectations. Um, you know, little kind of cultural range. There's so, you no know, Christian few books, that sort of thing. Certainly a world where things were for other people. And always being mindful or aware, almost 
sort of instinctively at first and then gradually being more confident about what shape or complexion it took, that I was other or different in some way. From what age do you think you had that sense of well, otherness? It's difficult to say. I mean, I certainly know that I, you know, we used to go to Hatfield House and that sort of thing, and I'd think it was absurd that they were taking me home, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was desperate for some terribly, I'm not sort of cruel, but at least some, you know, um, challenging childhood narrative. I was boarding school, anything. You know, none of that. I often say, you know, I don't have an interesting autobiography because I was immersed in unconditional love, the greatest yeah. and most profound privilege of all, and which has robbed me of anything interesting to say for the first parts of my autobiography. Um, but, yeah, I just felt other. Um, you know, like I say, I was just interested in other things. Much more kind of aware of emotional things. Mm. Not terribly emotional myself, actually, just more interested in that sort of thing. Um, I don't think I was aware necessarily of being gay until I was probably about 14 or 15. Right. But the difficulty is, I mean, I'm sure you've got lots of questions. I'm banging on here, so mm, forgive right. me. Um, I think it's difficult now for um, younger people to really imagine what that self-realisation meant in 1988 or something, yeah. or 1992. You know, I've had the opportunity to reflect on that now in the columns I write and going to speak at universities and listening to hearing, delighting in young people and how active and brilliant they are. And, you know, now there are issues about representation, but when we were young, there was no positive, no reflection whatsoever of gay sexuality present culturally whatsoever. And where they were, when they were, they were matters of national scandal and shame. Well, that's what I was going to say. It wasn't that there weren't any positive stories. It was all negative stories. Right. And um, so I already came to that emotional table with the sense that there was a narrative that I had been conscripted into coming from a inverted commas modern orthodox Jewish working class family. There was a story that was utterly expected of me. Anything else was shameful, quietly mentioned. You know, even marrying out of Judaism was yeah. then changed massively now. My mum having grown, etc., but was spoken about in shameful whispers. But this kind of cloak of shame that you gradually start wrapping yourself in, eventually you become asphyxiated in. And exactly as you describe, you know, I remember when Barry in EastEnders was going out with Colin. Do you yeah. remember? Yeah. Michael Cashman, I can't remember of the actor that played Barry. But this was a matter of, night of national scandal, but I couldn't wait to watch it. <laughs> or when um, Stephen, who was then married to Sammy Joe on Dynasty, kissed his lover Bart. I mean, God, did I stay up for that. <laughs> Um, but again, it didn't end well. There were books, of course, uh, you know, you could... I was a little too young to read Morris, but I would have read it when I was about 12 or something. But none of them ended well. No. You know, if you were a gay woman, lesbian, there was the well of loneliness. But you were utterly taught, completely aware culturally, that um, your lifestyle, as it was described, quite specifically and deliberately, set against, of course, the backdrop of... 
legislation which specifically precluded us even talking about it, in fact, making it criminal. Yeah. You know, um, that, that shame was layered on top of shame. And you were constantly aware and present in what normal was and looked like. There was nowhere else for us to go. Yeah. And it's really difficult to think about how your identity is framed and the impact that that has against that social backdrop. You know, from basic things, you can like have a kiss and a girlfriend. It can be even sort of thinly sectioned in the famous five. But where there's no presence of that in novels or books, right? yeah. those sorts of things. That's why, for example, I think, even though it's not necessarily a, a queer story, Harry Potter books are very important because you can become transformational. They can, t- you know, that sense of otherness is present in those novels. Um, there was nothing. And certainly nobody ended up unpunished, as we know. And, of course, there was a backdrop of HIV-AIDS, mm. AIDS, actually. Um, so it became a frightening thing as well for family. And um, so I had girlfriends who I loved very much, but, you know... Did, did you know that, I mean, I, mean, I, I went on dates with women... Mm. which I knew was never going to go anywhere because mm, right. I wasn't sexually attracted to them, mm. but I was trying to keep up a, a bit sure. of a facade. Um, did you know that that was futile to have these relationships, yeah. um, but it was what to sort of keep up a bit of a pretense? Or? No, I desperately wanted to be straight. Yeah, me too. Desperately. You know, not to the extent where it interfered with my emotional or psychological chemistry, where... Um, it, it troubled that, you know, we know now a lot about the impact that that has um, on people and leads to self-harming and various other things. I, I didn't have, I didn't experience that, which I feel enormously grateful for on reflection. But I wanted to be straight because I wanted to gift my mum that had been through so much. Um, the story that she had told herself about my future Mm. because I didn't want her to hold the danger of me being gay or the shame of it. To some extent, on reflection, I suspect it informed my choice of becoming a barrister, actually. You know, it's much easier to cushion the social blur for my mum to say, well, you know, he's got a first-class degree and he's a barrister (laughs) and he's gay, out-of-work actor or writer. You know, especially in the Jewish community, as you can imagine. (laughs) Um, but no, and I love these women, and no, I, I, I wasn't like you. I wasn't just, you know, um, what's the expression when you go shopping, you're just looking in the window. I wasn't window shopping. I, I, I carried on through university, mm. thinking, you know, perhaps if I carried on trying, you know, like I suppose a sexual field of dreams, you know, um, if you build it, they will come. And other narratives, you know, things like the story of Stephen Spender, who, as you know, if any of you have read Isherwood, if you haven't read it, read it. You know, who lived a gay life, uh, you know, amongst Auden and Isherwood in Berlin in 1913, came back and fell in love with Natasha, and he was clearly bisexual, and um, I certainly wasn't. But uh, it was unsafe and shameful and difficult, and I, you know, I repeat this much as I knew intuitively, more than intuitively, I'd ultimately be met with acceptance and unconditional love. It was dangerous. And then in 1999, Queer as Folk came out. Mm. It's fascinating when I talk to people how much that programme 
meant means to people. And I'm sort of vaguely friendly now with Russell T. Davis. There's never a moment where he sort of texts. You know, like some great authors, I discovered the other day that Toni Morrison, when she'd finished writing at 10 o'clock in the morning, she'd start at 5. For me, especially recently, you know, I've gone back to her and just realised that just depth and dazzlingness, that's a word it should be of her genius. But once she'd finished at 10 in the morning, she'd spend the afternoon, according to Fran Leibovitz, watching Trashy Telly. You know, like real housewives and that sort of thing. So sometimes I'll get a mess from Russell T. Davis going, love the show. I'm <laughs> talking about, you know. You're like, <laughs> there's never a moment that's just not cool, you know. Um, but Queer as Folk came out. It's interesting because I spoke to interview mm. James Wharton, who, um, you know, author of Out in the Army. He's my, the first proper episode. Yeah. And um, he talks about how that was transformational for him because oh, all of a sudden yeah. there'd be nothing positive on television. Right. Then all of a sudden there was this depiction of gay life as being fun and, you know, yeah. people enjoying themselves. Yeah. No internet. I mean, when I was at uni, I mean, I tell, I tell people now, my first day at bar school, we had to sort of come in. We had to learn what a Google search was <laughs> and how to use Lexus. <laughs> I mean, it's unimaginable now how quickly in the kind of blink of historical eye. But, um, yeah, it was gay people living a life of joy and delight and truth unpunished mm. that's really important unpunished and it's just almost sort of shame dissipating the moment Will Young who's become a great friend from Strictly and we've kept up so not a showbiz friend and he's written a brilliant book about this really worth reading I think it got, it's been released well we're, we're talking at the yeah. beginning of September but I think it's been released this week hasn't it, it? it is yeah. yeah and we talked a lot while he was writing the book actually um, so I wrote a gift to talk to you and often when we come back to think about our childhood, we forget about just how much you take on board and where the shame exists and the corrosive impact that that has on you. And I wasn't necessarily aware of it, but mm. the queerest folk happened. And to give your listeners some sort of idea about it, in my last year of uni, I decided I was going to do my thesis. I took university really seriously. I was really into it. It came sort of, it's the only time in my life I really did invest academically in anything. Um, I did my thesis on um, gay porn. Hold your horses, it's all legal, don't worry. <laughs> Although, do you remember back in the day when they used to prosecute obscenity cases? Yes. <laughs> and there'd always be some poor soul who would have happened to be uh, 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 in possession of the VHS video. <laughs> And you'd be sitting in court as the poor clerk of the court would have to read out the indictment. You know, yeah. Which said you did have a video contribution in the publication that, namely, naughty nipples and lesbian schoolgirls, how do you plead guilty but with mitigating circumstances? You'd be desperately trying not to laugh. Of course. Um, but the reason, truly, I reflected on it, and um, you know, I think it was, ended up being published, that I wrote about. Well, firstly, it was because at the time it was a very active um, political conversation in the, um, well, politically amongst feminists, you know, is porn a um, good or is it like Robin Morgan, I think it was at the time, that said, you know, it's the theory and um, rape is a practice, you know. That's what it was in the night. I, I must emphasize pre-internet there, yeah. that's when we you'd have to go and buy a VHS and you'd have one and it would be in a, a bag. And the reason I wrote about it was because there weren't any reflections of gay sex, gay kissing, gay sexuality mm. normalised. And 
So in my generation, the first time you might see gay sex would be in film. And that being said, um, you know, I've been honest about the fact that during secondary school, from time to time, of course, I was sexually experimenting with uh, the odd person, a couple of whom are married now, happily, um, to women, some not. And um, the difficulty was that there was always what I now, I think, describe as a kind of that uh, post-ejaculative sink moment, as, you know, you realise in the immediate aftermath, you know, one of you has to announce you're just experimenting and pretend that it doesn't happen and then walk on, you know. Yeah. So I left university and I came out in 2001. So how old were you? 22, probably, 23, 23, no, 2000, I guess. 22, in bar school. And I went to my mum's office. Now, actually, it was like a slow process. So firstly, I told my um, stepsister. Right. How, how old is she compared with you? She was the same uh, age as me. Right. Precisely the same. We were great friends. My best friend, probably, in many respects, and certainly in terms of confidant things. Sadly, she died also in oh, 2001. Crick, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, but I told her first, knowing that it was safe. Yeah. So it's almost as if you, for me, built a series of, if you're climbing a mountain little safe stepping stones, or whatever you called climbing. I, yeah. I don't climb, I just look, looking at the climbers, I don't, you know. <laughs> the things that you drill into the wall to yeah. keep you protected so you won't fall far. So first my sister. Yeah, that, my sister was my first person as well. Right. So it's, uh, there's parallels there. Yeah. yeah, less risk, right? Yeah. You know you're going to get a good response. Sure. And then my aunt, darling Adele, and then it was significant telling my mum. By this stage, it was unusual because, as I say, you know, these two women, the one that she was born into and became in her early married life and by now running a company, employing a number of LGBTQ staff, mm. um, including, I believe, a couple of trans staff, which back then was yeah. you know, rather extraordinary. Um, and the reason I did was because I had fallen in love. And that mattered. Didn't last long, of course. You know, it was the, that type of hot, burning, fleeting love that mm. disappears after the first ejaculation. <laughs> that they were. Um, but I was in love, so it mattered. Yeah. You know. You know, my desire to be truthful because of that love outweighed any risk that would ensue being rejected, which I knew to my core wouldn't happen. So I went to her office. Um, I don't think I've ever talked about this in as much detail. Um, I went to her office, uh, you know, I think a bit like, you know, in Jerry Maguire, the film, if anybody's seen it, or there are, there are novels which are just as good as trailer, where, you know, they, he sacks one of the sharky, amoral agents, sacks Jerry Maguire in a great big restaurant, because, of course, you can't make a public fuss. So I thought, well, I better go to my mum's office and do it in that way because, you know, she's got a bunch of LGBTQ staff if she's going to... Um, there can't be any drama there. Right. Um, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't go down there. No. Also because I thought she would have her professional head on. And, you know, like, I find this with my girlfriends. They almost very often, certainly three cases I can think of, exist as almost two different women, you know, the professional one. I don't know. <laughs> 
So I wanted to speak to the professional one on that day, and I went to tell her and said, you know, I'm in love, and I'm in love with somebody in his name. And um, I could tell she was shocked. And then what ensued was this sort of um, fine, and then a, a, a sort of challenging 24 hours mm. of processing. And during the processing, she was helped by the fact that I'd had a sort of cousin by marriage who was gay who had already come out. Obviously her staff and staff. But there was a challenging 24 hours. And sadly, some of the processing that she did was to talk to me, which she now infinitely regrets. And I never stop in the you know, moment when she's really down and deploying just to make her feel much worse. But there was that 24 hours which she now deeply regrets, of, you know, just language which was unfortunate. Mm. I'm disappointed. She immediately took it back, I mean, of talking less than two days. And it became fine. Albeit I could see her worry and feel her concern, but then I was always mindful, seriously mindful, about how she had come to be socialised, and I had. This was a scary thing. Well, I was going to to say that her reaction, which is not um, dissimilar from lots of other parents' reaction, Mm -hmm. was indicative of the you know world in which they'd grown up in. I mean, if you were, I mean, my 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 mum said about my coming out was she was conflicted when I first told her because her first thoughts were your life's going to be more difficult because of course it was all about you know gay people aren't liked you know you're spewed right. as paedophiles or you, you know, people have AIDS Precisely. and so that was her conditioning so mm. I can understand why your mum's yeah. reaction was like that yeah no it, exactly so and um, to, to add another layer onto that also because we were Jewish and she'd been because of my grandfather so I recently reflect on this another element about being other mm. yet another thing for you to be for you to have in your identity which is going to make life more challenging also there's an element of grieving yeah certainly then you know it was unthinkable for me to get married then think about this is a blink of a as i say generational mm. eye you know marriage wasn't possible but Having, we're, not, we're not talking that long ago no, no, though that's the remarkable talk, thing right 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 exactly so and children yeah I mean, and so at that moment, there was a grieving process. And that grieving process that she had to go through was to let go of the story, the narrative that she had told herself about me. The normal life, the children and the family and the daughter-in-law she would have. And none of the things that we've come to now expect were even thinly possible back then. They weren't even foreseeable. Yeah. And so she had to have that grieving moment. And it's interesting because for me, that grieving process took me pretty much the best part of a decade. Oh, really? Because, you know, I came from a sort of Catholic upbringing mm-hmm. and I um, realised that if I came out as gay, then that would be the end of what everybody expected, i.e. marriage, having kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Also sin as well. And uh, Of course. Same and thing. so it's funny how we expect people to get over their grieving process quickly right. when right. it took me, for example, so very long to process. So 24 hours, I think your, your mum did pretty well. She did extraordinarily. Because she's been, you know, she is that sort of person, reflects thoughtfully and quickly. She's grotesquely mindful, you know, always seeking a little bit of joy. When I eventually got divorced and I went round to her house to tell her, it was very painful, but... Um, 
and I wanted to begin this discussion. I've been with my partner for 13 years, and she said, well, before we begin, how can I be mindful in this discussion? I thought, well, you could at least throw something. You'd have something for this chapter. But no, you're precisely right um, in what you say. And I don't know whether this has informed, you know, your lawyering and eventually um, how you come to think about people in front of you now. It certainly, I suspect, has affected my approach to others. But people don't come as blank slates. They mm. come as the product of their culture, environment, lived experiences. Yeah. And so I had to forgive her those 24 hours or whatever it was. Mm. Because that is how she'd come to understand and what it meant to be a gay man. And the only thing I asked of her, and I always ask of others, subsequently in my professional life, advising officers, some of whom were homophobic over the years, it's like, that's fine, I can forgive you for a little while, but come on the journey with me. Mm. I know why you're this person. You've not met anybody like me. This is frightening, this is strange. You've been told a lot of stuff. Um, and that's why you're prejudiced. So what I'm gonna ask from you is not to dump that, I can't unteach any of that, but at least judge me for who I am. At least be prepared and open enough to see what I can do and see who I am. And I'll give you a reasonable amount of time for that too. And I think generally it, it's, it's worked. And I was met with love. That's not to say it didn't have its turbulence, of course it did. My brother was absolutely perfect, of course. You know, I think I was sitting with a friend. He, um, what was his answer was, can't, I, I can't even remember. It was a matter of the most sublime indifference as far as he was concerned. That's how my brother was, yeah. interestingly. Uh, my dad, again, really interestingly. Actually, I didn't expect anything different from him. But, and I don't mean this unkind. We still have a relationship. I'm much closer to his family than perhaps him. But, mm. you know, it was less important to me which is a challenging thing to say, but an authentic one. Um, I think he said to me, oh, I just thought you were bi. And then we carried on talking about whatever it was. I mean, it wasn't a great shock. And he took me to football when I was six, and I fell asleep until half-time and asked whether it had started yet. Um, but, but, yeah, generally speaking, I was met with, with, with love. And that was true of all of my friends uh, uh, as well. It also helped because by then um, I'd left, no, by then, you know, I really met my people. Yeah. My friends from university, who I'm still friends now, who, for whom rather sexuality was a matter of the most, well, it didn't matter to them at all. And so that was a gift. I'm also mindful of other privileges which I've now come to understand as I, uh, you know, have worked alongside LGBTQ charities or been at various events, that I came from London matters an enormous amount. Yeah, I agree. That totally changed the complexion, the psychology of people who were experiencing me. You know, um, even the religious community that was available to me, by then I had become, you know, my, my mum had changed, if you like, uh, her the denomination, is that the correct word, of her Judaism. She 
is religious in every good sense. Mm. You know, she sort of takes the good and the kind of the bad flies by her, you know. And um, so there was even a religious community available to me and stuff, if, if, if I wanted it. There was never, if you like, I didn't experience any rejection at all. Not, not at all. And as I've come to hear, and I mean hear, not just listen, hear stories of other experiences, you know, um, I realised what a, a kind of gift that was, really. It's, it's interesting because I, I, like you, deep down knew that my family would be, you know, completely accepting and loving. Mm. But it's difficult, I think, for some people to understand that that doesn't make it any less difficult for you as the individual mm-hmm. who's got to tell those family members. And for me, I, I found it difficult because I thought by the time I came out, sort of age about 30, that they had all assumed that I was straight. Mm. And all of a sudden, I sort of had to drop this sort of bombshell on them. And I knew right. that I was going to, you know, right. tell them something very different about me that they hadn't known before. And it was, it was tough, really tough, yeah. even though I knew they'd be accepting. But you come with your baggage. Mm. It's not, you realise so, well... I say one realising, it doesn't always go well and we need to be mindful of that. And I heard a story not long ago, and I can't name names, but where somebody came out and you would expect objectively this family, most overtly liberal family in the world, had real problems Mm. with it. Often you can't predict it, but like you, it remained then and remains now, which is curious considering how advanced we are um, it's still something you have to declare about Mm. yourself that has a danger danger of rejection and still one that you have to wrestle with because like we were talking about earlier it still feels or felt then certainly something which was shameful potentially wicked and given yours and my religious complexion, um, possibly, you know, followed you into the afterlife too. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Not nothing. Um, so, yeah. And, and you were met with love. Yeah, completely. Um, and my parents' reaction was, you know, there was a sort of, literally a moment of... of um, concern and then one of congratulations. I mean, we oh, nice. literally, my parents said, we need to go and celebrate. Oh, that's lovely. Um, but I mean, the one of the reasons doing this podcast is I know from having heard lots of mm. other people's coming out stories, which is a, a real privilege, is that, you know, for a lot of people, it's a very, very mm. difficult experience with often very serious ramifications. Yeah. <sighs> it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, um, What did happen afterwards matters. I think um, nowadays, like I say, you and I know, and one never wants to sit around like an old man smoking a Poe pipe or some snaggletooth Wiccanist to go, (laughs) oh, well, things were different back then, you know. know. And who is this David Beckham? You're a judge, I'm more like it than I am. Um, What is this crime art? Um, But... um, There is something, I think, regardless of how difficult it may be, that changes in your emotional chemistry after you've done it. Mm. For me. 
And I think we, this is why I think a podcast is great, is because we can take something from everybody's personal experience. But I hope that perhaps the connective tissue between all of the stories that people hear here is that overwhelmingly, after you've done it, it's a positive journey. That, that is a thread that's run through every single one of and my it's interviews. It's so important. And I often worry and we have to talk about the dangers and we have to have uh, structures and safe spaces in place for young people especially and others when things go wrong. To be sure, that needs to be in place. But we also need to be mindful of telling young people who are thinking about coming out, and older people too, um, that from that moment of living truthfully and authentically, um, it's by and large good news that when you're living in that sort of truth about who you are, you're more likely to find happiness. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be permanent, but you find love in some capacity. That you will find your human beings, if you're not in that space now, who will accept you for who you are. And that doesn't mean anything until you found those human beings, yeah. but you know it when you see it, right? And also to be now part of a rich community as well, and plugged into that community, can be a, a gift. And until you come out, your light isn't on. I le- recently heard, some of your listeners may know Rachel Maddow, um, who's a gay woman, a brilliant presenter, American presenter on M- MSNBC. And she came out of college and she said, here's the good news, though. Um, she said, your, your light goes on. For some reason, other gay people find you. <laughs> I mean, when we did, we didn't have, you know, Grindr or the internet. Yeah. Things were a little bit more challenging. But, you know, I, I want people to, that are thinking about coming out or thinking about the challenges to be persuaded by the long-term journey that you'll take, which is likely, very likely, to be a happier one once you've done it. The yeah. tragedy is, perhaps the most articulate expression of the tragedy is that even now, in 2020, as we sit here, that you still have to do it. I mean, there's no moment when my brother had to go to my mum and say, now here's the thing, I'm getting married thinking about having two kids. Yeah. It's strange, isn't it? It's interesting. Uh, Matt Cain um, and I were talking about this the other night, and he was saying that it was always obvious to people that he was gay. He couldn't disguise it. Mm. So um, he didn't get that option but for people that don't present in that way mm. or the way that people stereotypically think of gay people you it is a constant coming out you know coming out doesn't just happen once That's it true, happens yeah. every time you meet a new friend or go to a new workplace yeah. or a new environment yeah that's that's it depends on the work now i know a lot of people see me and think that you know i'm camper than a liza compilation album and that's <laughs> fine um partially true and I never hid who I was and I never certainly curated any different sort of character however um, like I say I had all the outward trappings girlfriend and certainly up to when I was 21 and, and I never hid my sexuality during my career um, I was no straighter than I am now or I am in court but you know you have a court voice and a court persona and a persona with clients and yeah. things and I was dealing with as if there are unserious, but certainly serious cases involving gang members and terrorist cases and international cases, etc. And eventually 
you know, from 2010, a little bit later onwards, um, with officers, some of whom were slightly antediluvian and had policed all grieve and were looking at me, and I could tell as they were looking at me and I was looking at them, they were looking for a corner of the room. And I'm looking at them going, listen, love, if the world were flooded with piss, I still wouldn't go anywhere near your bottom. <laughs> but, like I said earlier, we went on a journey with each other. Yeah. And at first we were deeply uncomfortable. But you're right to say, there's a sort of coming up, it has to be said. And even now, you know, I remember, you know, I, I got married. And, you know, a, a long relationship for 13 years. Again, I think that made life easier mm. for my mum, perhaps. She loved my ex-husband, still does very much. Um, but of course, it, it was useful insofar as we had all of the outward trappings of a nuclear family, you see. That gave my mum, I think, and other people a sort of degree of what I'm loosely describe as middle-class comfort. Yeah, it's I can a see that. But it's something we need to be mindful of now, especially as we think more broadly about the queer communities who don't want to live their life in that conventional way. It isn't truthful to them. But I had this marriage and, um, you know, and like I said, all, all of the things that my mum could put the house and the dog and the two lawyers and, and all the rest of it. And he was very nice and etc. And I think that was, that was um, very useful to her. But even then, my, my ex-husband certainly doesn't inverted commas present as gay. My mentor at the bar, Malcolm Bishop, who's a deputy high court judge and a um, silk of some repute, I'm very close to, who lost his husband um, at the beginning of the year. They were together for 51 years. Okay. They met before it was legal. Yeah. You know, um, y y you do have to tell people. It's like a weird thing, like you say. And even though I was married and in this sort of, you know, conventional marriage, I would still sometimes be nervous. I never really thought about it before, but you would be testing the room, you know, my husband. Yeah. Now, I can't say with any honesty that when I eventually did that, it came as any grand surprise. But certainly would have done when my husband used to say that sort of thing. Certainly when Malcolm mm. would talk about his partner, he certainly couldn't do it in a robing room. He certainly couldn't have done it at, um, in the high court no. back then. Uh, but even now, people would be surprised. Um, and, and on that, yeah. I mean, how do you think the, the legal world is, and in particular the bar, mm. in terms of its sort of receptiveness to LGBTQ um, community and diversity generally, and how's, how's it changed, do you think? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? You know, I'm out of date. What I mean by it, I'm still a member of Chambers and I keep my practicing certificate up and all the rest of it, but I, um, you know, I'm often asked to give advice to young people about becoming barristers. My information, of course, is pre the level of debt that they're in, etc. So um, I, I'm aware that the bar has taken up diversity in a, in a serious way. Mm. And I wondered, and I still wonder, whether part of the reason for that and, and perhaps the reason I didn't meet personally any homophobia in terms at all was it is that when we started, it was made up of a kind of a odd um, patchwork quilt of characters. Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, you remember some of the people, that some of the judges, some of the sills. I mean, yeah. now they don't exist anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
no doubt we can tell each other stories. <laughs> we can't believe. But I think that because we're sort of all individuals as members of a club, that perhaps meant that my homosexuality was considered as some species of posh eccentricity. Yes. And I'm mindful of that too. You know, I have a friend who is out and gay and is uh, Mark McAdam. He's a sports presenter, football presenter on Sky Sports, who you should talk to. And um, it's a different thing for him when he came out. But, you know, I was sort of posh and seemingly, even though I wasn't. And um, I don't know. I, I, I don't... That's, that's why perhaps I didn't meet the type of prejudice that others might have done. I never experienced anything like no. that in respect of clerking. I mean, from the odd client from time to time. But, you know, I suppose it, it, you know what it was like. I mean, I used to represent the National Front, and I'm gay and Jewish, and they would say the odd thing. And I think, well, <laughs> it teaches you, doesn't it, at the bar? It certainly helped me later on when I ended up in television. When somebody would either espouse or even hold these deeply emotionally corrosive views, you'd think to yourself, God, you've got residual energy in your life to spend, to invest in this sort of hate. And you think, you're not a happy human. There you are, sitting up all night, wearing a muumuu and chain-smoking parliaments. <laughs> you know, anybody that held on to that sort of prejudice, you, you, you see it in your court. Yeah. You know, it, I never envied them. I always just felt more than intuitively, actually, physically, emotionally, sorry for them. Yeah. So those were clients, and professionally, yeah. Also, I suppose, because of the gift of having unconditional love and protection amongst friends, I suppose. I never worried at all, ever, what strangers thought of me. I always worried a great deal more what I thought of them. Perhaps that's the feature of narcissism. Sure it is. But also, um, but if one of my friends or loved ones said that I'd done something awful, I'd be... Yeah. Absolutely... How the, you, you asked me a question which I pivoted from, haven't answered, and have given you a bunch of <laughs> claptrap and humour, because I don't know. And I'm anxious about answering it because I think you'd have to ask other people. I yeah. can only talk, and I'm conscious about talking about my experience. I try to keep my hand and try to be aware as far as I can be about what the bar is doing, what the Judicial Studies Board is doing in terms of diversity. And... All I can say, as far as I can gather, anecdotally, is that they do take it really seriously. And um, it's a learning curve that they've had to go on, they, the organisation. And there are good organisations. You know, there's um, gay organisations at the bar. There have been since I started, actually, with Blag and Blag, others. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're active and they're made up very often by very smart activist people, which is good. And so there's always been a place for me, and I've always felt at home at the bar. You know, I don't know what it would have felt like if I'd gone into a large corporate, mm. for example. Um, I think now that would, would be absolutely fine, because most of the big sort of law firms have got very oh, sure. good LGBT networks. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you, the bar is a sort of interesting patchwork of, mm. of quirkiness that... Um, 
you know, eccentricity was just a norm and accepted. So right. someone being gay wasn't really an issue. No. And I think you are right, um, and I know you're right in terms of the, the bar now is much better at promoting diversity and mm. um, it's a much better place, I think, for mm. LGBTQ students who want to join sure. the profession. Well, the difficulties with that for LGBTQ, it depends, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I'm the G, right? And the L, perhaps, and... Um, I present, we present in a way where, you know, there are, there are different issues now. So, so uh, I'm white and um, middle class, seemingly, like I say, despite the fact that this is all one great big creation. I can't too late for me to change now and go back. Much as I want to sound like I came from Southgate so I can attract the people I'm interested in, but, you know, scaffolders just aren't interested <laughs> in me. Um, but, but I, you know, I'm, for example, aware now of, um, you know, the, the new frontiers and the new issues. So trans students, for example, who are coming to the bar, um, may, for example, be met with different challenges and prejudices um, and different issues. There may be. Now, I'm confident that the bar, I'm barrister, because I'm more mindful of that, but clerks may not be. Yeah. And, you know, even now, and you know this just as well as I do, there is, and retains, that's the wrong word, there still is, in clerks' rooms. Granted, I think clerks are less significant now than they used to be when we started. They yeah. give out the work and you have to have a relationship. Now, it's a much more corporate dynamic, but there still is, you know, clerks still have power to give out work. And I do think that there's still, for example, sexism in the way some cases are given out. So you often hear of young women's careers being steered in a certain direction to cases involving children or sex crime, when they're actually much more fundamentally interested in fraud. Now, that certainly doesn't happen in my chambers. But there still is this quiet sexist unsaid about certain types of cases being girl work. Yeah. And I don't think that just disappears from clocks. I mean, it'll, you know, it takes a while. And in the same way, I suspect they're, you know, they're, 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 you, just because you change the language, you don't change the attitudes as such. And there still are, there still is sort of, I suspect, homophobia, transphobia, etc., which might have an effect on how people's careers evolve. But by and large, I think we've made significant progress. And to say we haven't is, you know, problematic, I think. I do speak to young people a lot. I, I recently went to Oxford and spoke to uh, one of their LGBTQ organisations and um, it was fascinating to meet them and hear them and to find out what they were interested in. Mm. And I didn't thought I got cross with them as such, although I told them I was. Um, you know, I, I often think with young people, in terms of choosing their political battles, and this is perhaps controversial, in the LGBTQ arena, let's call it that, that um, they often, I say they, and I'm using a collective group and stuff, but it's been my experience of the discussions I found myself in, uh, don't apply their kind of political activist muscle in the best way possible. And so I'll go to these organisations, they get terribly um, exercised by, for example, which is important, 
about, for example, issues around certain racist dynamics on Grinder and that sort of thing, a discussion which is important to be had, etc. Um, but often I think um, a, a lot of that thinking is around privileged communities. And when, I, and when I speak to young activists or people who are out and in the LGBT community and at university and students and thinking about um, wanting to play a part in any kind of activism, it's to be kind of mindful of that privilege. Sometimes people don't come from it and they've got better stories, but to be very globally aware and locally aware of the lived experiences of people outside of London and big commercial centres. It's still the case now that outside of the city, your chances of physical rejection and ending up homeless is much greater. Yeah. It's still the reality if you're trans, you're more likely to experience violence, serious violence. I went to an awards event not long ago and a woman stood up and she said, I've been attacked um, seven times in one day. It was today on the way here on the tube. God. Taught me so much. Globally, in terms of thinking politically, you know, I'm often troubled by the moral gymnastics that people amongst the queer community do and fail adequately to point, as my hero and now friend Peter Tatchell does, at societies and countries which have appalling homophobic records. And amongst that young community are prepared to forgive that because of other geopolitical reasons. Mm. I find that very problematic indeed. Not that it should be the only thing you think about in terms of your political identity, but it does matter. And I worry sometimes, especially in these privileged spaces, that the LGBTQ activism has become the politics of Western, very first world privilege. Yeah. When actually, as you know, for many people around the world, yours and mine lived experience isn't just one of shame, it's a death sentence. Yeah. And I wish uh, young activists were more mindful of that, and that's true in our country as well. So I try to persuade them of that. I just wanted to ask you about um, the, your Strictly experience. Oh, yeah. Because, of course, this week um, in the press, we've learned that Nicola Adams is going to be the oh, first yeah. same-sex dance partnership on Strictly. And I know that you did it in... Was it 2016 that you did it? 2016. I had the best time. Was it, I mean, was it as fun as it looks as it is, you know, when you watch on TV? It was every bit as fun and then some. There are two things I say about it. The first one is, um, you know, we come from the bar and you, you, you know what it's like. You've got a difficult child week, Sunday night homework. It can be a 90, 100-hour week. And um, journalists kept saying things. Granted, I was doing the show and, you know, we'll have eight cases in a day. But, um, and I'd have to rehearse in those evenings. But Jones kept saying, oh, you must be working so hard. <laughs> you know, anyone seeing my face right now, it looks like sort of <laughs> Kenneth Williams on steroids. <laughs> and of course, you know, and I think all my friends were still at the bar. You know, I phoned a friend of mine about to go in front of some terribly difficult judge for some interim, 
you know, emergency injunction application. She'd been up all night with three kids and the briefs covered in baby sick. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I really must phone her and say, you know, how's your day? She's off on her way to court, completely exhausted. Well, I can't get this cha-cha. <laughs> yes, I'm working really hard. I don't think so. Um, it was joyous. But the other thing was, um, you know, without being sort of too right on about it, it taught me an absolute shed load about gender. Mm. Because, um, really, truly, um, I was permitted to have the best time ever. First thing, nobody thought I'd be any good, and I wasn't. But I was allowed to have a good time and to grow because I was a man. And I'd show up to rehearsals, most of the time without my kit. And we rehearsed upstairs at Sainsbury's, so I'd go and buy a ropey pair of pyjamas, bottoms, and put them on. Nobody was speculating about me having sex with Oksana, my partner. <laughs> Um, nobody commented on what I wore. If I said, God, I really want to win, people were like, that's just marvellous, you know. Whereas people like Laura Whitmore in my year, or Daisy Lowe, or others, you know, it was a total, or um, Louise Redknapp, for example, it was a totally different experience. Mm. You know, I was permitted to have the best time ever. And I did. I mean, you know, when you stood in court and these are real life and death issues. Granted, in the first week when I did my chatter, I can't lie and say I didn't shatter myself, because I did, <laughs> you know. But after that, you know, people would say, oh, you know, so, you know, nobody bloody died. No one's going to prison. It's a laugh, and it was great. It was a complete great experience. Um, but I made a really stupid error during that period, which was, um, and if anyone's Googling this, you probably should, it's important that we admit that and forgive others and forgive ourselves as well, which increasingly um, public discourse is less good at, which is deeply problematic. Um, I was writing a column in the Evening Standard, I think then, and I answered questions, a legal question I had on for five years in the Sun. But I took up a column in the um, Radio Times because you've got to do work. Yeah. And of course, people in TV are like, how can you do all this work? You're like, love, please. <laughs> You're talking about work. You know it. <laughs> um, and I seem to remember at the time writing a column, it's stupid now, um, saying that um, I didn't think, I mean, of course, it's been misrepresented, but what I said was that, in a nutshell, I didn't think that same sex couples necessarily mattered. There's no more than that. Just that it didn't necessarily have any, um, it wouldn't have any ensuing effect on how people perceive gay people. And almost as soon as it had come out of my gob, a bit like in the first week of Strictly when you've got the dazzling lights and you find yourself just completely in bewildered awe and terror of the whole thing, and nobody's ever told me to say anything I haven't wanted on television ever, apart from that one moment I looked down the sort of glitter ball down the barrel end of the camera found myself saying my whole life all I've ever wanted to do is to get to Blackpool. <laughs> right, and almost as soon as it's come, <laughs> come out of my gob, I thought, well, bloody hell, you know. I thought, well, that's a silly thing to say, Robert, but, you know, it's been said now, I can't unsay it, I'll take it back. But very quickly, I'd forgotten. And actually... Um, I changed my mind instantly, and I've written about it subsequently. Also, you know, who apologised for saying that, saying that I didn't think it would matter. I mean, it goes counter to everything we were talking about earlier. You know, Strictly is not just a programme, it's a phenomenon. It exists in the television schedule, the landscape of television, in a way that nothing else does culturally. 
It's like it used to be when we were kids and there were three channels and everyone yeah. got 10 million every day. The only show that gets 50% share in 10 million people that galvanizes communities regardless of background, class, race, etc. And also, which has this sort of overriding, um, not theme, but there's a kind of uh, uh, energy around it where people want you to do well. They see through anything else other than the delight in you doing well. And so gay representation in that situation, in that show, is enormous. Now, it may not matter, it may not seem it matters to some people, but when I think about the person I was, where there was no representations of gay people at all on television, the idea that there's a same-sex couple delighting, being assessed by virtue of how good they are at dancing. That's not to say there won't be the old, the odd, irretrievable idiot homophobe. But eventually, hopefully, as Nicola goes through the journey, as they call it on Strictly, people come to forget the gender of the dancers and come to delight in how good it all is. Yeah. And for that to be in people's safe spaces, their living rooms, sitting alongside perhaps a young daughter or son who might be gay, who might not have ever met a gay person. What that does, in a way which might be difficult for some listeners, is to just make it a little bit safer for that young person to come out. Because if a parent can go, oh, she's all right, that Nicola Adams, yeah. and look at that. Just perhaps in a tiny way, perhaps in a large way, decloaks the shame around being gay and may make it a little bit safer for that young person, for that young person, may make it a little less likely that that young man might self-harm, that young woman might end up with an eating disorder, for example. As we know, high levels of that might take their own lives. High levels of that in the young LGBTQ community. So I think it's really important. And in fact, I offered to dance in the Christmas special. They nearly took me out. I did dance on stage with Anton de Beck for um, a Grenfell charity gig choreographed by the brilliant Arlene Phillips. Um, he's still getting over it. Um, I wanted Gorka, of course, but they showed up with him. Um, but I will do, a, a, if not this year, because I don't think they're having one, Next year, I mean, I, you heard it here first, I will do the Christmas special with a male partner. I'm not saying it's going to be Gorka, but let's just sit and pray to the gay gods. <laughs> I want to uh, mm. ask you um, the same two questions I've asked of all my sure. interviewees. Uh, and the first is this. Um, if you had your sort of coming out experience all over again, mm-hmm. um, would you do anything differently? You know... I'm not going to give you a long answer, but I'm going to say this. You know, it's impossible to answer that question ahistorically. I wish I had come out in university because I've had way more fun. Well, I, I, I'm the same. I, I've said the same thing. <laughs> not that I didn't. I mean, I was still having dalliances. Don't get me wrong. I was involved with actors <laughs> and debates and that sort of thing. I subsequently, what that meant by not coming out sooner for me was that I never learnt the vocabulary, never built the emotional muscle to deal with what it meant to be truly in love for the first time. 
And so, as you know, if you're straight or if you're out, if, if you could be yourself through your adolescent periods, you know, you fall in love, you fall out of love, you experience pain, and, but you build muscle during that process. If the first time that happens to you in a true way is when you're in your 20s or 30s, mm. and that relationship fails, I feel like the pain that you experience is greater because you have no memory of what that was. You haven't learnt to be true. And and, I mean, I've talked about how it's strange having to confront that in your early 30s because by mm-hmm. the time you are that age, most people have had that experience throughout right. life of how relationships work, what, you know, what works for them, how, you know, because relationships are difficult, but there's all of a sudden sure. I was sort of age 30 and I had none of that to, to right. help me through the process. Right, quite. quite. So, so I guess, um, the answer, I wouldn't do anything different in the kind of practical process. I'd have said the same things, etc., and probably done it in the same way. Um, but like I say, I, I think the timing, I wish I'd done it sooner. Which I hope a lot of other people say in, in your podcast. Yeah, it won't, it won't surprise you to hear yeah. that's a, a common thread as well. Yeah. God, I would have been a... Although I probably would have been a monstrous slut. <laughs> <laughs> the second question, uh, which I asked everybody is, um, mm. what advice, if any, do you have for anybody sort of on that coming out journey at the mm-hmm. moment? Um, yeah. I always worry about older people giving younger people advice, you know, because um, I can only talk about myself. And the danger of giving advice on something so important is I don't live in their shoes and can't possibly know the infinite cultural, personal complexities that person's experienced. But I will say this, that um, all of them are cliches, but they're cliches for a reason. Number one, it does get better. Secondly, the delight, relief, the joy that you feel living an authentic and true life, you won't know until you do it. And thirdly, there is a community out there for you. And if that's not found in your family, it's the family that you eventually will have, will curate, And the combination of all of those three things means that you will find the truest forms of friendship and ultimately the truest forms of love, the love that's unconditional for who you are. So it's always worth doing it. So be courageous. Well, on that very positive note, I'd just like to say thank you very much, Robin. It's been a joy. It's been lovely to hear your story. Thank you very much for sharing. Privilege, your honour. No, it's a privilege. privilege. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please rate, review and subscribe and get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram or through the website.